Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Are there really lake monsters? If so, are there breeding populations? What is their relationship to humankind? Hello, and welcome to the 1003rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WOON AM and FM. Uh, and, uh, here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via Tune, or actually, no longer via TuneIn.com. Uh, I'm Ben and that was Paul. And today we bring you an old friend on a new subject. And coming to us via Skype today for his first appearance on the show in seven years is Steve Alton, uh, best-selling author of the Meg series of novels. Uh, Meg being the lovable 60-foot prehistoric shark. Uh, the Lock series, and umpteen other uh, blockbuster action novels covering everything from Mayan prophecies and genetic engineering and UFOs and government cons- uh, government secrecy, all sorts of goodies in there. Uh, the Meg became the uh, 2018 major motion picture uh, of that name from Warner Brothers. Uh, three other books have now been uh, optioned for films. Steve writes in a genre we respect uh, that he calls... Faction, combining scientific fact with fictional characters and settings. Uh, Steve holds a doctorate in education from Temple University, and today uh, we will concentrate on the Lock series. His website, SteveAlton, A-L-T-E-N, dot com. Steve Alton, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Boys, how are you? And I use boys liberally because we all look a lot older. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'll take that as a compliment because, you know what, age equals wisdom in some senses. So I guess we'll we'll, we'll hop right into it here. Um, So can you give us a general overview of the Locke series and the science and folklore that you tied into, uh, you know, really before writing it? Yeah, uh, actually, it was my manager, Kid actually at the time, who asked me to write a book about Loch Ness, and I turned him down because... You know, I sort of lumped it together with uh, Bigfoot and, and the abominable snowman and, and just, you know, I didn't want to write something silly. I wanted to write something factual that, you know, could be thrilling. And I just didn't see it in Loch Ness. But then he asked me to look into it a little bit. And so what I did was I contacted a friend of mine uh, and uh, William McDonald, who's uh, a bit of a crypto guy and a bit of a space guy and and very learned man. And uh, I said, this Bill you really know what's going on in Loch Ness? Is it all just BS? And he said, no. I've been out there several times, and I know what's out there. And I, I said, you know what, show me your information, and if I like it, I'll give you the credit, of course, and I'll write the book. And that's what we did. And I was blown away by his stuff, because you have to understand there's, there's, the, there's the money-making machine that works out of... Uh, uh, the, the Loch Ness Hamlets and, and the villages there. And then there's the uh, the real situation, that there is a life form in this huge lake, 23 miles long, a mile wide, seven eight hundred feet deep, dark water filled with peat. It keeps it dark. And uh, there's something down there. there. There's a lot of things down there, as a matter of fact. So I followed his advice. I stayed with it. And I, and I used the book to... My opinion that I just gave you now is also the opinion of the lead character, Zachary Wallace. And Zachary, he knows about these things because he's a scientist and and he's young and he's very intelligent. And the real monster in his life was his father, an alcoholic who abused him a lot. And uh, his mother finally moved him to the United States. 
And uh, so he didn't have to deal with that after his 12th birthday. But when he was younger, um, he knows there's a monster out there because he was attacked. And the thing, whatever's down there bit him and left welts across his waist. And, and he was told it was something else. So so we have in the lock, we have the, uh, the, uh, the real monster. And then we have the... The fake monster that sells all those uh, souvenirs. And what my job was to do as an author was to represent both of those sides, but make sure that the reading audience knew that there is something out there that you should be worried about, but it's, it stays deep because it's a, it's a nocturnal creature. It doesn't come out and show itself. It has no interest in coming out, except if someone screws with their, his food chain. It's food chain. That's what happens in the lock. Well, I'm uh, I'm a big fan. I love the characterization of the Wallace family, all the way to the creepy eels, you know, uh, crawling around there toward the end. But um, let me ask you, Steve, what is your personal opinion on uh, what's in the log? Is it a breeding population? Is it somehow interdimensional? Or what say you? Well, again, it's like my character says, Zachary Wallace. It's it, what he discovers, and you know, I don't want to give it away. But, no, no. Uh, there's a logical reason for what is down there, and the logical reason is, you know, yes, it is. It is some kind of eel, but it's not a normal kind of eel. It's something that has been around Loch Ness and 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 the United Kingdom, uh, going back centuries, uh, even longer. Uh, Maybe uh, thousands of years ago, there was a creature there called a, a Gweaver. Yep. G-Y-V-R-E being uh, a wingless dragon, they used to call him, which sounds sort of like a, an eel. And these things were immense. And they could kill humans if they wanted to. That humans aren't on their diet. But they were definitely a pest. And that's what plays into the story, the, the, the history of these creatures, because they come from... Uh, they're actually, you know, the eggs are laid uh, in Loch Ness, but it's 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 when they're out at sea at the Sargasso Sea that these creatures come from. Yeah, and it just so happens to be that the Sargasso Sea is where they the Navy found something they call the the bloops. Yes, the bloops being these mysterious creatures uh, that make these strange sounds that are picked up on sonar, and so the bloops have everything to do with Loch Ness. And Loch Ness has everything to do with the, the past, all these things that have happened in the past. Yeah, it's funny. I was involved in 1984 with one of the uh, Autech uh, military exercises down there. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't sure what they were doing, but it matches up with what you say. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the fellow you described as telling you about Loch Ness and assuring you that something really was going on, uh, can you go into any of the personal experiences that he had? <laughs> he is a character, I'll tell you. But um, he's, he has had some personal experiences. But um, you know, he's, he's seen them. He's been over there in the winter when he's he found snow tracks. In fact, uh, when we go on a break, I'll, I'll prop these I'll prep these pictures because um, I'll be able to show them to you. I think. Um, He's got pictures of eel tracks in the winter. Uh, he found, um, 
And when I say eel tracks, I'm talking about an animal that's 40 foot long, not 10 feet long, like a, you know, yeah. a, a, a normal eel. And um, a few other things that evidence. Oh, 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 almost forgot. <laughs> it's been a while. So what year was it? I guess around 2007, 2008. I have to check my notes. Um, there were a couple of um, college students from the United States who contacted him who claim that they uh, were traveling around Loch Ness in a boat and uh, saw something along the shoreline, got out, and it was a dead deer. And the dead deer had tooth marks all over it. And as they're filming, one of the guys yanks one of them out. I don't know if he had a pliers or whatever it was. And so he had a tooth of something that ate, basically split this deer in half. So um, he was showing me the, the, inf the information from that. He showed me the pictures. And uh, I took him to my publisher and I said, listen, maybe you can offer, uh, offer a reward for information about this, you know, because um, apparently some administrators from the lake or the uh, uh, came by and confiscated the tooth and took a bunch of film and they didn't get everything, fortunately, but you know, that's, I thought that was a pretty interesting case, too. Absolutely. Uh, we uh, all talk about uh, government secrecy regarding, you know, UFOs, UAPs, and all that kind of thing. But in our experience, there's government secrecy all over high strangeness, whether it be Bigfoot, cryptids, or, or lake monsters. And uh, on the other hand... Uh, there is some evidence that um, during World War II, the British government would start Lake Monster stories in order to um, cover up experiments they were doing with sea lions and seals and that kind of thing, that had a military purpose. Um, any comments on, on that whole thing? <clears throat> uh I have not heard that before, so I, I don't comment on anything that I really don't understand or have researched. Okay. Uh, is it possible? Sure. You know, anything's possible. Every time uh, around the show, you learn something, right? Well, I can, I, I can speak for myself and my wife when I say that I absolutely, absolutely know 100% that extraterrestrials are out there. Because, um, I'll give you this real quick, but I, I know you'll enjoy it. Um, I have a series called the Domain Series about the Mind Calendar's Doomsday Prophecy. Yep. And the third and last book in that trilogy is called Phobos Mind Fear. And Phobos Mind Fear, this is a very important section of the book that deals with extraterrestrials. So in doing the research, and I always do tons of research on all my books, uh, I came across Stephen, Dr. Stephen Greer and his... Um, this, this uh, two-hour seminar he had done years ago where he brought in the, some intelligence experts and, and uh, uh, rocket scientists and, and uh, CIA members and, and uh, intel and the type of people that, um, pilots, jet pilots, the type of people that you would never doubt. And each one of these people gave a five-minute testimony on their experiences with extraterrestrials. And while I was watching this, I thought, you know, this is great stuff. I would love to take out, you know, paragraphs from these guys, quote them, 
and put it in between the chapters. And But I need permission, of course. So I contacted the Greers, and they gave me permission to use uh, the quotes from their uh, their testimonials. I put it in the book, and then when I was done, when the book was published, I sent them a signed copy of the book. Uh, about a month later, I got a, a call back from his uh, wife, who said that she read the book, she loved it, and that she and Stephen were coming down to Miami uh, that winter, and they would love to get together with my wife and I and have dinner and meet. So, uh, do you know who Dr. Greer is? Oh, yeah. Essentially, he's the foremost authority on extraterrestrial and UFOs. Yeah. This is a guy who briefs presidents, who briefs world leaders, who briefs the UN. And um, he's come up with his own methods of contacting extraterrestrials uh, through what he calls um, uh, close encounter fives, which which are close encounters where humans establish contact with the extraterrestrials by... You know, letting them know that we're here doing different kind of signals, electronics, and things like that. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, I said, yeah, we'd love to go out to dinner. So uh, December comes around, the, the, the Greers are in town. Three nights before, we're supposed to have dinner together. My wife and I, it was a Saturday night. My wife and I are driving home from a movie, and I'm in my neighborhood, and I'm looking out at the uh, southern sky. It's pitch dark. It's about 11 o'clock at night. And I see these lights coming in staggered pairs, the color of which is sort of like a like a yellow peach kind of color. You know, very pleasant to look at. And as my wife and I, are, we, we pulled over and we got out of the car. We're looking at these things moving slowly overhead. Unbelievable. I mean, it's just not nothing frightening. It was like it was a, it was an honor. We were humbled by their presence. That's the way I was, felt, yeah. It was a privilege. What they were showing us was a privilege. Yeah. They were letting us see them for whatever reason. It's and almost, as they went overhead, they went directly overhead and went to the northern sky, they gradually faded into another dimension, a higher dimension. Yeah. So, of course, the first thing we talk about when we meet the Greers is, oh, you're not going to believe what happened to us. Yep. And, and Stephen basically said, yeah, it happens to a lot of people we're going to meet for the first time. It's those, they're just checking you out, see if you're okay, because if you're not, I'm not going to talk to you. Yeah. And that um, makes perfect sense to me. I can send you a link to a video that I took in Pennsylvania in 2019. You might find it interesting, and I felt exactly the same way. Ben? So I'm, I'm, we're going to, I'm going to, I want the, I want to shift the conversation back ever so slightly. Um, because I want to I want to kind of shift towards the folklore of of all of the Loch Ness monster stuff because it it starts early like the 500s early right the first known reference being the story of Saint Columba you know going up to the land of the Picts of which if nobody's familiar with the with the Picts they were they were an old old um, civilization that was you know not conquered by the Romans. Um, when they took over most of England, and then when they tried to get to Scotland, they kind of built Hadrian's Wall. They couldn't make it any further. So the Picts had their own sort of fun little culture. And um, <clears throat> there was this whole story that St. Columba goes up there, you know, and he's hanging out with the Picts. 
and the picks are burying some guy by the lock, or Loch Ness in this case, and they were like, oh, well, you know, he got murdered by a monster. And so it was sort of the first known reference of this. Now, there's all sorts of old folklore of, like, dragons floating around at this time period and, like, all sorts of other things like that. And and there's a really sort of fascinating thing that I found recently just by kind of studying sort of older folklore and myths, you know, whether it's anything pre-modern and sort of how people existed in the world, right? So there was there's this notion that I've been really, really into um, that's posited by this philosopher named Charles Taylor who talks about there's sort of two, two sort of ways in which we exist. So there's the pre-modern way of thinking, which is sort of the porous self, which the the delineation of where the world begins and where we end is fluid. How we interact with the world is a give and take. It's, you know, we're a part of it, we exist in it, you know, it's 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 fluid, it's porous, how how we interact with it, etc. Then there's the modern view of the self, which is the buffered self, where we take a step back from the world, the wall we put up so that we can see, we can look at everything and, and, and assess it and, and dissect it, so that we, we understand the world around us. And both of these have you know pros and cons. But the problem is that we're I I find you know at least at least in this this particular genre that we all all work in that there's sort of this wall we hit as rational people in the modern world where we're running into these fantastical things right. But at the same time, you know, we can we can go we can go to it and we can say, well, you know, we know Loch Ness has, you know, it has X, Y, and Z, it has all these underwater caverns. You know, it, it, there is a possibility that there could be something living down there. But there's all of these other portions of it, right? Because there's four ways that humans sort of order reality. So music, ritual, uh, art, and language. And through telling stories, we, we build a, an understanding of the world around us. That's why narratives are so important. Right, you know, it's why we all freak out about, you know, oh, they're they're pushing a narrative, and it's it's not that it's like, well, you know, they're 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 trying to order reality in a certain way. So in in this sense, Steve, you're doing important work by trying to order reality through your stories, and trying to take these these elements, you know, of faction. I actually I really like that idea because it does sort of take these elements that are sort of fictitious and fantastical, but kind of tries to ground them in reality. But do you ever find trying to make faction difficult by trying to take these things that are kind of fantastical and ground them in reality? Up, oh, you're muted, Steve. There you right. go. My dog, my dog, let herself in. Just <laughs> <laughs> Well, there he goes. Uh, he's running away from the question. <laughs> he's running back. I've got a German Shepherd. And she's extremely smart. She knows how to open my door. Oh wow! Oh yeah. So, <laughs> uh, to answer your question, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I understand what you're saying. I agree. You know, I understand the higher dimensions, the fourth dimension up, is the, is where time doesn't exist, and so that changes the whole equation. You know, we live in a, in a dimension, the third dimension, where time does exist. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, the energy of the future, the energy that propels these vehicles, all has to do with, um, 
Jeez, my brain snapped off for a second there. Uh, what's the abundant en- energy um, called again? Zero point energy. Zero thank point, you. yeah. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Zero point energy, you know, is what separates us from extraterrestrials because it gives us the power to exist without destroying our planet. You know, it's free. It's it's non pollutant. It's it's uh, we know how to get to it. We're just the uh, the people in charge don't really want that because they're heavily invested in everything else. Yep. So I'm not sure if that's the direction you want this to go, but uh, but I mostly was recording your uh, with the um, uh, the uh, Saint um, Columbus really was the first person to witness uh, the creature attack. Uh, It's interesting that you say that because um, in the book that I'm working on now, the third part of the lock, which is called Lock Three, Heaven Lake. there's a section upon that St. Columba, but he's. if you go back and look at the real history with him, he's not actually a saint back then because he, he St. Columba was named a saint 150 years ago, 150 years after he died. So he came there as somebody else. He came there as a, a, a religious leader who was in a little bit of trouble because he had started a uh, sort of a, a mini war before he left and they sent him to Scotland, which was not called Scotland at the time, it was just called the uh, the Northern Territory where the Picts lived, like you mentioned. And uh, so he got involved with the Loch Ness from a different kind of area, which is brought about in the history of the book. Interesting. Well, I guess I guess really the the, the question sort of was um, how we view folklore nowadays, right? You know, it's like I, I always make this this distinction because it's like you know I. Um, I, I, a friend of mine, he's a very smart, very smart kid. He has a he has a PhD in in like theology. You know, and we we were discussing something once, and I mm-hmm. I was saying how, you know, I think it's really important how we exist in the world. Really, kind of matters more for paranormal research. The phenomenological portion of it, right? How we experience things is very important because we experience reality as modern people is in a very disjointed way. Right, we we break everything up, and so it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm here at this minute, but over there, something else is happening. It's just, it's very disjointed, and you can see it in in our daily lives. Everything's separate, but it, but you know how ancient people viewed it was it was it was just a part of everyday life. It was you know the layers of reality, the the mythological, the political, the mundane. You know, all of it was happening all at once. And his whole response to that was, yeah, you know. Ancient people just tried to do things, to, you know, they just made up stuff to make, you know, nature make sense. You know, so they had thunder gods to make thunder make sense. And I thought about that for a really long time, and I was like, these people built, like, really impressive civilizations, whole empires. They weren't stupid. These were intelligent people. Their buildings are still standing in many parts of the world. They weren't dumb. You know, they, it's like, you know, oh, well, they're building these incredible aqueducts and doing all these things, but uh, they didn't understand weather. It's like, uh, what? All of our foundations of thinking were made by these people, right? If there wasn't Socrates, Plato, all these people, we we probably wouldn't be talking the same way we are now. But at the same time, there's this disconnect, this disjoint in the modern world where we just kind of, like, shut off a part of that. We say, nah, they were stupid. They didn't quite get it. Now, how do we reconcile that with, with stories like the Loch Ness Monster? 
I'm not sure you can reconcile with Locke this monster, but um, yeah, I'm, I have, a, like I mentioned, the My Encounter story domain. I mentioned the third book in the series, Phobos, but uh, in the first one, it takes place, uh, it deals with the My Encounter's 2,000-year-old prophecy that on December 21st in the year 2012, that was it. And um, all the civilizations that you're talking about, the Mayans, the uh, the Mayans had Kukulkan, uh, the Egyptians had Osiris, the uh, the uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl was part of the um, uh, the uh, Aztec Aztec. Uh, you have Gunder for the uh, Norse. I'm sorry. You have Jormungandr for the Norse too. Okay, but the, all these—it's not the people; it was the leaders who were teaching the people that had this, uh, not just an intellect, but you know the the secrets to the universe, and, and they were and they were being taught that. Uh, and, the, and all these guys had the same characteristics, you know, um, long, silky hair and beard, uh, very tall. Um, blue eyes, bright blue eyes, and, and, and skulls that were deformed so that they sort of went back. And we find, and then we, and when we look through the uh, architecture there, and, and, we, and we do the digs, uh, we find uh, uh, people that have the same uh, skull, elongated skulls, because they were looking to uh, mimic their leader. So, you know, how do we interpret all that? Well, you know, I have one way of interpreting it, but but what's important is that, yeah, these guys were out there, I guess they did have this uh, intellect, they also had this knowledge that how things were. And um, it's bears some looking into. Okay. Oh, well, why don't we take our mid-show break? Sure thing. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. On WOON, 12.40 a.m., 99.5 FM, in New England's uh, kind of wet Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest, Steve Alt, so stick with us. We've unlocked the vaults, and we're replaying Casey Kasem's American Top 40, The 80s. This week is from July 4th, 1987. That's when Chris DeBerg danced with The Lady in Red. Fleetwood Mac lived to see the seven wonders. Level 42 taught us lessons in love. And Hart asked, how do I get you alone? You'll hear those songs, all the top 40 hits, and the long-distance dedications from July 4th, 1987, right here on Casey Kasem's American Top 40, The 80s. We're local and live at 99.5 FM, ON, AM, and FM. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here in Blackstone River Valley's sort of rainy day here in Woonsocket, W-O-N, A-M, and F-M. Uh, we're going to hop right back into it with our wonderful guest, Steve Alton. We're talking about folklore, Loch Ness Monster, UFOs. Is it all connected? I suppose it is. Well, let's give Maybe Steve it a chance to talk about his website, his books, and what he's working on. Go ahead, Thanks. Well, uh, my website is um, Steve Alton, A-L-T-E-N dot com. And uh, one of the major things I'm working on right now is a, is a series of books. Uh, 
called uh, Meg Legacy, which is, I have seven Meg books, six and I'm writing the seven, about these huge creatures that we're going to see on August 4th in the movie theaters, Megalodon. And what what Meg Legacy is, is something that, that my readers have been asking for a long time. They wanted to have a collection of all the Meg books that look uniform on a nice box set. We've taken it a step further. Not only did they get the seven novels in a seven-volume set, one one novel per uh, volume, but they also get the uh, the six graphic novels that were the six graphic uh, comics that were made. They get uh, four uh, novellas, which I edit into the series so that um, everything flows and uh, it's a lot easier to read and a lot more fun. They get. <clears throat> series of new graphic images that were created and, and, and uh, commissioned other artists to create. And they also get my own bio that sort of parallels the events that have happened over the last 25 years, which have included some pretty wild stuff. Yeah. So um, if you're interested in Meg Legacy, you can just go to meglegacy.com. Okay. Uh, you piqued my interest there, Steve. What uh, wild stuff has happened to you? Well, that's 25 years. <clears throat> well, let's see. Uh, my first book was Meg, a novel of deep terror, the first book in this series. But my manager can actually had actually sold the rights to uh, dream, uh, to uh, Disney's Hollywood Pictures, so that when he took the book out in September of 1996, and uh, the Friday before that, which was Friday the 13th, I was fired from my job. So I went home with no money in the bank and went to my wife and kids and said, don't worry, this is the best thing that could happen. Now I get to work on my uh, second book, which was not what my wife wanted to hear. Yeah. But three days later, Meg went out to the six biggest publishing houses in the country and buoyed by this uh, movie deal, uh, created a bidding war for for, for Megan and the second book that I was planning on writing, and uh, got a pretty good deal, two point one million for two books. That changed everything, of course. But um, Doubleday, who was the publisher, went overseas to the Frankfurt Book Fair, the biggest book fair in the world, and and Meg became the book of the Frankfurt Book Fair. So all these wonderful things were happening. While, but while I'm working on I start the second book, which is about the Mayan calendar, like I mentioned. And my uh, publisher says to me, um, nah, forget all that. We're going to make you the next Peter Benchley. You're just going to write underwater books. And I said, well, first of all, what's wrong with the old Peter Benchley? <laughs> yeah. Why do we need a new one? And also, I, I just don't want to be pigeonholed into writing underwater stories. I've got, you know... Yes, the Loch Ness is about the underwater story, but but Domain is about the extraterrestrials and the mind counter we just spoke about. But she said, well, this is it. That's what you're going to do and like it or lump it. So I gave them what they wanted, and uh, two weeks before I was supposed to collect on the other half of the million dollars, uh, they fired me. Oh, my gosh. And the reason they gave was... Actually, at first, I didn't give any reason, but, you know, Meg had just hit the bestseller list, the New York Times list, and I was just, I was on the uh, Today Show with Matt Lauer, but, um, so 
So all the, you know, what happened was we discovered that um, that Doubleday was being bought out by Burlesman, this huge conglomerate, German conglomerate, and Burlesman was not real happy with the idea that Meg was the book of the Frankfurt Book Fair. So the Germans got up a little bit upset with Meg <laughs> and took it out on me. They bought Doubleday to cut Meg. Well, it's not the real, you know, it's the only reason, but. So these are different things that have happened over the years. Wow. Had you ever considered writing about poltergeists? I uh, can't say I have. Okay. Maybe we should talk. Anyway, that's, a, that's for another day. Um, okay. Regarding um, getting back to the lock, uh, Ben has always loved lake monsters. We yeah. have Lake Champlain up here in New England. And uh, I remember last time we were up there, we were eating in this restaurant out on the docks, and you couldn't take your, your eyes off the lake. Oh, yeah, I was really into <clears throat> lake monsters. Still am. Yeah. So, Steve, in your opinion, uh, again, are, are there what kind of breeding population would you need, or is it really mystical? I'm not sure it's mystical. I think it's biological, but um, yeah. it's about mystical. Uh, as far as what kind of population, well, you know, I would assume that it falls into the same sort of pattern that, that Loch Ness does. You know, we have an eel-like creature. Uh, maybe not one is like the Gweaver, but, you know, certainly a, um, you know, a predatory species that was is sitting on the top of the food chain there. Well, uh, we have a, one case in Ireland uh, which seems to be full of these things. Uh, in our book, uh, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot Mothman and Monsters You Never Heard Of, in which you are uh, honored with a page as one who has inspired us, and uh, <clears throat> an entire family watched an eyeless, saurian-type creature come up out of this rather small lake. And the question arose, if it didn't have any eyes, maybe it was from inner earth someplace or from areas uh, where there are caverns where many of the aquatic creatures don't have eyes because they don't need them. So I don't know, uh, that might be something to consider uh, various kinds of origin for these sorts of creatures. Well, um, let me give you an example of that. Um, it's not a book, but I have a place, uh, a website called SeaMonsterCove.com. SeaMonsterCove. Okay. And the, the origin story with SeaMonsterCove is that uh, on Mog, which is a, an island in the uh, Mariana Islands, North America, Mariana Islands, Mog is essentially a, a volcano that erupted five million years ago with such power, it blew the cone off of the volcano and everything is leveled out at the ocean. So there's no longer an island there. There's there's uh, three islets that used to be its cone. And this uh, this cove where hot water is, is rising up from the... Uh, that goes down through the lava tube into the mantle. And uh, before it gets to the mantle, it passes through an aquifer. A prehistoric aquifer that dates back uh, almost 400 million years to the Devonian 
and which is where you have sea creatures like the Dunkley or Steus. And uh, so my goal was to create a place that we could go to, uh, suspend our reality for a little bit, and watch these sea creatures as they uh, swam around this huge, vast habitat that we create. Okay, well, that's fair enough. Neat. Um, we can't neglect in any show not, not, you know, to talk about Meg, uh, where it all kind of got started. Uh, <clears throat> we've talked in previous shows, it was so long ago, not, you probably don't remember, but, uh, <clears throat> again, pardon my voice, uh, but the, um, the notion of a prehistoric survival. Uh, now, remind us, when was Meg supposed to have gone extinct, the Carcharodon Megalodon, giant uh, 60 70 foot shark was that the only only about it wasn't even a million years ago was it well the Miocene which is about uh, anywhere from uh, 100,000 years ago back to 30 million 30 million years ago that was the Meg's time that was the Miocene and uh, there was also uh, a uh, huge whale with uh Predatory whale, Leviathan Meldi, they call it now. Yeah. That was its main adversary. But uh, yet, unlike the dinosaurs, Meg uh, only died recently, and it could still be out there. There's no yeah, reason. That, that's the question, yeah. Um, have you uh, encountered examples from the news or something you drew upon in writing that series that um, would indicate that there are survivals? Well, you know, I get that asked. I get asked that a lot. You know, is it possible for me to still be out there? And you know, I believe in science. And what is not science is when someone says, "Well, we haven't seen one, so they're not there." Yeah. Well, right. they're not going to, you know, swim around the boat with its dorsal fin, you know, creating a little wake for you to show them that they're there. When if they are there, they went deep, and there is, there's reasons, valid reasons for the megalodon to go deep because. They're, they didn't hunt in, in uh, packs. They hunted solitary uh, hunters that could were vulnerable to killer whales, packs of killer whales. So, you know, how do you survive a pack of killer whales? You go deeper than they can go, which is not that far. Hmm. Uh, orca can only go about 900 to 1,000 feet before they have to turn back. Where a megalodon is a fish, could go into the deep water. Now, why would they go deep? Well, one reason would be that we've had ice ages over the last, you know, um, 10,000 years was the last one, I believe. That was a mini one, but the, the major yeah. ice ages have, have lasted longer than that. So if the ice ages drop the temperatures, then what's at the bottom of the oceans in certain places? Hydrothermal vents. And these hydrothermal vents create like a, uh, a seal because the hydrothermal vents are filled with... Uh, uh, different kind of uh, minerals and, and, and gases and, and uh, you know, just like the movie Meg, which they got from the book, uh, in about a mile off of, the, off, of the, off of the bottom, you have sort of a, um, a layer of isolation. And that keeps the warmth in and attracts the people, the predators. 
Hmm. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Well, it's kind of uh, like Archituthis, right? I mean, when they when they first discovered that Archituthis was still in existence, everyone was like, "Oh, giant squid doesn't exist. That's not a real thing." And then all of a sudden, it, you know, just popped up on camera one day, and it made like national headlines that, "Oh, it does exist." <laughs> I, I can't remember the circumstances exactly, but I do remember it was like the the early two thousands when they when they discovered, "Oh, geez, it still exists," and it was um. Uh, geez, I can't remember if it was off the Marianas Trench, but it was it was some really deep portion of 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 water where they were like, oh wow, we, I guess it does exist. And then it, then they did a little bit more study, and it turned out that you know whales were just eating them, and it, and it turned yeah, you know, and they kept finding them and turning up, turning up, turning up. And I, I guess it's it's one of those things where you know we know so little about the Earth's oceans that who knows what's down there. I mean, we're finding more and more things every day. It's 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 definitely worth looking into. It's just I don't know. It's probably just not not enough research well, done on it. One of the things I wonder about: you have a, a creature that lives extremely deep in the ocean, with the tremendous pressure involved, like Archituthis or, or Megalodon. And I remember hearing stories in Canada of uh, fishermen being up in you know, Newfoundland and in the bays there, and Architeuthers would come up and grab one every now and then, and down they went. So, I mean, maybe Steve could enlighten us. How can a creature that's used to tremendous pressure come up to the surface without consequences? Well, pressure only affects you if you have a chamber of air. Uh, fish don't have a chamber of air. Uh, octopus doesn't have a chamber of air. We do. Whales do. Mammals do. And that's what. If, that's why we can't handle the pressure because if you've got a volume of air down here, you know the pressure squeezes it till it bursts. Oh, okay, that actually but makes a lot of sense. If you're yeah. a fish, then the ocean's moving in and out of you. There's no air. Um, okay, there you go. Well, we learn something new every day. That's right. Okay. Um, have you looked oh, at any? So, as you proceeded through, uh, I've only read the first book, but the other lock books, do you tie into any place other than the Loch Ness? The Sargasso Sea, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've been there. It's pretty creepy. Um, It's also remarkably calm. Well, there's no no wind there, so sailors get stuck there and die there because they're They'd set sail in their sit, these great sailboats, and then they'd hit the Sargasso Sea yeah. and uh, be stuck there. Well, as you point out in the book, um, Christopher Columbus sailed through there and got the mistaken impression he was near land. You know, it's, you know he kind of wasn't uh, big on geography. No, uh, Not uh, ironically. Forte, yeah. what, he, what he, he thought he was close to land was because of the Sargasso Sea. They call it Sargasso because they're... Sargassum, which is this like uh, algae-like uh, growth that that hangs on top of the water, so you know that's what flattens everything out. And, I got and, sick of looking at it myself, but in any case, uh, and there are also flying fish, mm. which are totally weird. When you know, I used them, but anyway, uh, none of them were giant and they didn't have teeth. So um, that you know of. Well, that a bit me anyway. Mm. So, uh, where did the e- uh, no, I don't want to give too much away, of course, but where did these creepy eels fit in with the uh, the Guiver you know, in the book, the lock? Uh, 
the the uh, Angula eels are um, uh, cousins, first cousins to the Guiver. Yeah, they're not as big, but they are the same type species. Because there's there's been speculation that uh, the Loch Ness creature or creatures is a uh, everything from a sturgeon to a big eel. And then you know, nobody really finds out because you got so much. Mm. As Steve pointed out, you got the problems with the water. It's really dark. It's full of peat, etc. Mm. Yeah, I, I highly doubt. As as fun as it would be for it to be a plesiosaur, I highly doubt that it's a plesiosaur. Well, again, uh, and Steve can enlighten uh, us on this too. There is an opening to the ocean from Loch Ness. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay, and because uh, of some of one of the scenes in your book, yeah, the Moray Firth, yeah, Moray Firth, exactly, yeah, and people didn't know about that uh, until relatively recent times. Mm. Well, they they knew about the Moray Firth, the Moray Firth, but um, they don't know about the aquifer that runs under the, the uh, Loch Ness uh, River that leads back into Loch Ness. Oh, okay. Mm. Well, it's funny, uh, maybe our local listeners would be interested in, we haven't talked about this in years, it is in the same book we, we referenced, that uh, <clears throat> while I was walking along the bike path next to the Blackstone River in 2015, I heard this huge commotion in the water uh, right below where I was, and I took out the phone, and there was this huge head that was looking at me and I, I got this all on uh, you know for, for, in, uh, photos and uh, then it turned back into the water and disappeared and I was speaking it looked like a python and uh, Rhode Island being so small uh, I was friendly with most of the state government so I sent the director of environmental excuse me environmental management and the chief biologist uh, these photos and everybody got a big kick out of it but uh, if it was something weird beyond a giant snapping turtle or a python which is not, obviously not native to New England but people have uh, you know, they, they released the pets and they wouldn't have survived the winter uh, I don't know what it was but it was huge and the look I got from this thing, I felt like one of the Wallaces there, Steve. And uh, anyway, um, well, I remember a few years ago, um, up in up in Massachusetts, and where I was at work, and I, I a guy I worked with was like, "Hey, yeah, you know, this is an article that like you know some guy found like an alligator just swimming in a river, like <laughs> you know, like it was like a few, it was probably like maybe like fifteen twenty miles from us." I remember that. Yeah, and it was, uh, uh, I think it was like in 2001. It was like in the summer, so it was like still relatively warm, but I was like, but it was like a full-sized alligator too, which was the weird part. So it's like, where did this thing come from? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. People people release stuff, you know, throw things around, but I mean, invasive species are a thing too, so it's, but you never know. I mean, definitely well, not with cold-blooded reptiles. The real question in places like Ireland or here, when you have lake monsters, is and maybe Steve can comment on this, is that they are glacial. Mm. They haven't been around that long as far as geological time is concerned. The uh, the Blackstone River, 
is glacial, but it's it's been dammed for you know turbo purposes for uh, or hydro, I should say, for centuries. At this point, yeah. So if this was some kind of monster, where did it come from? What's they use, Steve? Where do these things come from in areas that they shouldn't be? Well, um, you know, since the last ice age, you know, you have plate tectonics that are moving vast areas of land and sea. And, and uh, you know, the second book in the Lock series, Vostok, takes place in Antarctica, where you have this, Vostok is basically this uh, massive freshwater lake that is liquid uh, that lies beneath the... Uh, the ice cap, which is about two to three miles thick. So the pressure of the ice cap sitting on this water that dates back 15 million years uh, keeps it uh, warm enough to stay liquid as well as the uh, geothermal events that are down there as well. So, uh, you know, what's in those stock, we don't know, but whatever lived 15 million years ago may still be down there. Yeah, that's true. But I have to tell you that um, as a... Uh book editor at times in my career, uh, I really enjoy the writing uh, that you give us, and I have to say that uh, had you known me in the 1990s, you wouldn't have had to sell your car to pay for editing fees, but it would have been a pleasure. So anyway... um, I guess give us your website one last time, Steve, as yeah. we're, we're coming down to the to the wire here and find out what uh, what you're working on, your books, where they can find, where everybody can find them. Yeah, you could repeat that. We've only we're only going to print five thousand seven volume sets of Made Legacy. Okay. That's the big one. Uh, only five thousand for the world. So uh, if you if you get one of these things, I promise you they're going to go up in value at least double within the first couple of years. But more important, you'll have the entire Meg series right at your hands, uh, faux leather uh, covers and gold trim on the pages and the whole works and and big massive books with not just a single novel on it, but a lot of other things too. So MegLegacy.com. That is nice. Okay, why anybody would go swimming anymore in the ocean? I don't know. But Steve Alton, uh, thank you for a great show and we'll be in touch. Thank you, guys. Okay. So let's get to our announcements, Ben. Indeed. So you can look for us at the Exeter UFO Festival on Labor Day weekend in September. That's uh, September 2nd and 3rd. We plan to do our traditional live show uh, from the event with the live audience on September 3rd. And the Greater New England UFO Conference uh, is back. This will be a one-day event on uh, November 4th in Lemonster, Massachusetts. You can watch more information on that. You can visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly uh, 1,200 mm-hmm. hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WOON, AM, and FM. You can also hear many of these broadcasts on major podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube, as well as Spotify. And you can download our show app. It's free at BehindTheParanormal.com, right there in the main page is a link. And you can browse our books, along with those of our guest co-hosts, and lots of other information. And uh, our website has a charity page as well, with links to several good causes we have adopted over the years, including Hope for Hilldale Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts, USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, 
the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, and most recently a GoFundMe page for the folks in East Palestine, Ohio, site of the recent uh, train wreck and chemical fire. And we try to keep up with these disasters and uh, appropriate charities to help people, Mm -hmm. but it's very difficult. There's so many catastrophes happening lately. I know. Natural and otherwise. Right. You know, but we do our best to kind of uh, vet them as as we as we can, and we 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 post what we can be because we we believe in these things. We know a lot of these people, yeah. And so it's 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 definitely it's definitely important. Well, that's the thing. When when we endorse a charity, we really check people out, and uh, we know the people who organize them. So a lot of them are local, mm. uh, you know, in that way. So what's going on next week, Ben? So next weekend, on uh, July 9th, we'll welcome researcher, experiencer, and biblical scholar Ella Laban, or Labane? Labane. Labane, lovely, for a look at Who's Who in the Cosmic Zoo. I like that. That's a, that's a that, fun That's, that's a fun actually title. a series of books uh, that she wrote, and... Uh, in our pre-show conversation, and we we always talk to people we don't know before we book them. Mm. And uh, she's really, she studied in Israel. Uh, she's an experiencer and uh, fascinating background. I think it's going to be very interesting. I hope we get to talk about giants. Oh, yeah. We yeah. talked about that. Oh, good. Yeah, okay. That's, that's important. It's very, it's very important for for the for some for a lot of very odd cosmological things, especially in the ancient world, because they were everywhere. They were in most cultures. Yeah, and in some way, shape, or in the Bible, etc. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> of course not. Well, anyway, uh, we leave you today with a thought from Canadian author Robin Sharma: "The fears we don't face become our limits." I like that. Well, I I've, I don't know if I'd say that about deep water, but <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, I, I I mean to be fair, deep water terrifies me, but it's fascinating to think about, and it's one of those things where it's so spooky you just can't stop thinking about it. I used to think that, and when I was deployed with the Coast Guard, there's two miles of water underneath me while I'm taking this shower. Wow, you are yeah. a braver man than I. Fuck. Anyway. <laughs> Well, that being said, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.